And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Happy New Year and welcome to the first 2022 edition of the Force 5 podcast. As always, I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. Today we're talking Texas, which is apropos as the guest is Chris Condon, writer of the amazing modern noir image comic book series, That Texas Blood. So start thinking about your top five Lone Star State films. Before we shine some light on Alaska's Little Sister, we've got some social media responses from last week's show, which was Top 5 90s Teen Films, and this week's featured review for The Matrix Resurrections. So last week we had uh, Kyle Anderson on to talk Top 5 90s Teen Films and got quite a few responses. I'm just going to list a couple here. My buddy Jess, Miss L. Capitan, says, uh, Romeo and Juliet, Never Been Kissed, Clueless, Dazed and Confused, Empire Records, Mad Love, huge crush on Chris O'Donnell back in that day, and Encino Man. Friend of the show, Mike Thorne, who was on just a couple of uh, just a couple weeks ago, said way too many to name, but Rebels of the Neon God from 1992 and Nowhere from 1997, both of which I have not seen. I'll have to check those out. My old homie Stacy said scream all day, every day. Man, again, I hadn't even thought of this while I was coming up with my picks, but 100% it does work. And on Twitter, Hot Frey Pie, good uh, Game of Thrones reference there, said, Excess Baggage with Alicia Silverstone. Uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen that one. It's been a long time, and I'm a big Del Toro fan, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll scramble that one up again soon. Again, if you want to get into the act, if you want to be read on the show, Hit me up on social media. We got uh, at Force5Pod on Twitter and at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might make this section of the show. All right, let's get into our featured review. This week, I saw a film with a really great tech heist scene in which our main characters try to enter a tech facility to rescue their best friend whose conscience is trapped in their mainframe. But enough about Ron's gone wrong. Let's talk about Matrix Resurrections. I hope I did Dave Chen proud with that boom goes the dynamite there. Thomas? You seem particularly triggered right now. Can you tell me what happened? I've had dreams that weren't just dreams. Am I crazy? We don't use that word in here. All right, this is normally where I talk about the plot of the film, but the entire thing is so bogged down and convoluted that I don't even know if I want to attempt it. But here goes nothing. In the final Matrix film, Neo agrees to die to kill Agent Smith in a truce with the machines. And so when that happened, the analyst, who is basically a new Matrix architect, saw that Neo was an anomaly based on how he interacted with Trinity, so he kept them both alive somehow. Some of the machines went to help the human race in the real world, but others were not having that, so there was like a machine versus machines slash humans war, which the all-machine team won. So there's a new matrix that is run on fear and desire. Neo is in this matrix as a video game programmer. I think that's pretty much the crux of it. Oh, and there's a, there's a new Morpheus who was programmed into the game and real life or something, 
And he's also part agent, but there's also a different looking Agent Smith who's also an agent. And he doesn't like the analyst either. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. And I don't care because I thought this movie was fucking terrible. I think that the original Matrix film is an absolute masterpiece. The fight scenes and the innovation on display were breathtaking in 1999 and they still hold up today. There is genuine emotion, there is surprise, incredible sequences, and the film may have the most exciting third act ever made. The second film wasn't great, but the Chateau fight to the freeway chase is exhilarating and still holds up as one of the better action sequences in the 2000s. The third movie sucked, and it still sucks, but it doesn't kill the preceding films. It's safe to say that I have a pretty decent knowledge of how the world of The Matrix works, but even so, in preparation for this film, I watched the first two again, and then watched a recap of the entire series so I wouldn't have to spend two hours of my life watching the third. Now, I wish I'd spent my two hours watching Matrix Revolutions instead of watching this one. As usual, I'm gonna start with the good. There's a cool idea buried in this movie somewhere, in that there were machines and humans coexisting. There's also a really interesting scene in which a new agent move called the Swarm is used and people start dropping out of buildings like human bombs. Now I'm trying really hard to pull other positives out of this new Matrix film. And to be fair, I could be forgetting some of them because it took me four tries to watch this entire movie. The first time I stopped 30 minutes in because I was bored, uh, fell asleep the second time, had to stop the third time because of kid stuff, which if we're being honest was more fun anyway, but I don't think I liked anything else even after the fourth attempt to finish this movie. As for the bad stuff, first off, this movie is fucking confusing. And don't toss this you're not smart enough to get it shit at me because like I said, I got the Matrix mythology up to this point. It's a non-stop barrage of incoherent monologues and plot points that go absolutely nowhere. What happened to Zion, Neo asks. Guess what? We never find out. What happens to the new Agent Smith? Who knows? Zion is gone, so we get to head to uh, I.O., a city which looks like it's got 10 residents who either grow strawberries with the help of virtual assistants or light candles at the base of a deformed Morpheus statue. The city is run by Naobi, who now looks like Grandma Jack Sparrow and has basically all of the get-off-my-lawn traits minus the dish of hard candy as you walk in the door. Then there's some stuff about swapping Trinity's body with another person, but if things go wrong, who knows what'll happen in the world as we know it hinges on something, oh, and there's a Pokemon creature as well. If you were confused by the first Matrix trilogy, the good news was that there were some kick-ass fight sequences every so often to kickstart your stupid brain. Unfortunately, the action scenes in this film are tired, boring, and lazy as fuck. We barely see any hand-to-hand -hand fights from Neo, he doesn't even handle a gun, he's basically relegated to using his force field power over and over again. The choreography was bad. In the absence of the original fight choreography, Yuan Wu-Ping was sorely missed. I've seen better fight choreography in Frankie Muni's films. And don't even get me started on the gunplay, which was horrendous. There's a scene in which six agents are three feet away from a character named Bugs, and she's able to run a good 12 feet to get around a corner as they're all unloading their clips at her, but she miraculously escapes without a scratch. I could have armed six random kids from my child's daycare with Nerf guns, and they'd at least graze something. Like most modern sequels, this has this meta-commentary of blah blah blah, sequels suck, why do studios keep wanting to rehash the past, oh, Warner Brothers is forcing us to make a sequel to The Matrix, while doing exactly what it appears to be lampooning. This film, though, is worse because it literally keeps showing clips from the first three movies. 
The only thing the film is missing is a voiceover by Hugo Weaving saying, Last time on The Matrix, Mr. Randerson. Within the first act, it's already reduced the movie into a joke. So how do you expect us to take the last two thirds seriously? It feels like the Wachowskis attempt at a Wes Craven's New Nightmare or a Gremlins 2, except those two movies rock and this movie sucks. The film ends with an air of misplaced female empowerment that clearly mirrors the Wachowski sisters' journey since making the first film. Since they've transitioned into females, we see this switch to a female version of The One, complete with a female-led Rage Against the Machine cover playing over the final shot that feels as out of place as the rest of the film. Now, I think by now, listeners realize that I'm all about strong female characters, but the transfer of power just didn't feel earned, and it certainly did not feel epic. There's a shot in which our female character just kind of learns that she's the one, I guess, kind of, but the moment feels so stale, and instead of just zooming out of there when she realizes she can fly, the character just sort of floats away like a kid letting go of his balloon at the zoo. The big difference is that you'd feel more emotion from a kid losing his balloon. Presented with the red and blue pills, I wish that I'd stuck with the blue one on this one. The Matrix Resurrections is a steaming mess with subpar visuals, and despite a few good ideas, nothing comes together like it should. Everyone looks kind of bored on screen, there's never a sense of danger for anyone, no stakes, and everything about it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. If you're disliking this movie 30 minutes in, you can probably turn it off because it only gets worse. There's a 30-second post-credits scene that shows our tech bros sitting around a table lamenting that movies are dead, video games are dead, narratives are dead. And then they pitch an idea for a cat video collective called The Catrix. Yes, The Catrix. That's part of this film. Was the entire movie a fuck you from Lana Wachowski to Warner Brothers? Because it honestly felt like it. Now, I will say this. This is a highly divisive film. There are critics that love it. There are critics like me that didn't, and obviously this goes without saying, but if there's a movie that you're interested in, even if critics don't like it, you should still see it and form your own opinion. Again, this is just my opinion, but I thought it was, I thought it was just a huge mess. If you disagree with me, please send me a tweet, send me an email, shoot me a message on Instagram. I'd love to hear your opinion. Uh, just did not connect for me. They say that everything is bigger in Texas, but this week's sponsor is bigger in Indiana. Welcome today's sponsor, Paunch Burger. We know what you want. Healthy, natural food that still tastes great. And we're here to tell you, it doesn't exist. Healthy food is for suckers. It tastes like garbage, and if you say you like it, you're a chump and a liar. Be honest, this is what you want to eat. The Paunch Burger Dinner for Breakfast Burger Combo. It tastes amazing. What's in it? Who cares? How many calories? Shut up. It's awesome. Walk into your local Paunch Burger and tell them the Force 5 sent you and they're going to throw in 100 extra calories on the house. Pick up a greasy lard bomb or my favorite, the number two, which is a double bacon grenade deluxe, hash browns, chili cheese fries, and one poached egg. And make sure to wash it down with a child-sized soft drink. Not because it's small, but because at 512 ounces, it's the actual size of a small child. Paunch Burger. Put it in your mouth, or you're a nerd. to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Chris Condon. He's the writer of the fantastic image comic series, That Texas Blood. 
Chris, how's it going tonight? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. I'm super excited and I'm really excited to talk about the book, which we will get to here in just a second because it ties right into our topic tonight. But before we get there, I'm curious about your cinematic tastes. What are some of your favorite non-Texas movies? Oh, I one of my all-time favorite movies is um, The Conversation, the Francis Ford Coppola film. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a gritty 70s noirish tale um brilliantly told through sound editing basically yep. um and that that's an all-time favorite of mine i prefer it even to the godfather films um i know that that could be blasphemy to certain people <laughs> but to me i put the conversation up there yeah um i i mean i also i just have a uh, deep and abiding love for black and white cinema. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, noir in general, yes, but uh, Out of the Past is a all-time favorite for me. I know that that's like the noir for a lot of people, so I know that that's an easy answer, but it really is just a fantastic film. Jacques Turner is a fantastic director. I mean, you if you've seen his horror films as well with Val Luton, or psychological horror films, I guess I should say, um, with Val Luton, uh, you know that he works with atmosphere like nobody else. And then he brings that to when, when he does um, Out of the Past as well. Um, and then he also made a fantastic movie called uh, Curse of the Demon or Night of the Demon, uh, which is also great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just like film in general. So, I mean, I, I go from everything from musicals to you know, the gritty stuff, but in general, I tend to go towards the, you know, the, the, the darker side of the cinema, let's say. Well, tonight's topic is top five Texas films. And I'm sure that some of the films on my list tonight were influences on that Texas blood. So before we get into our picks, I just want to talk a little bit about the books here. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who haven't picked up a comic book or a graphic novel in years. So obviously we're going to be instructing them to pick up that Texas blood. So what can they look forward to when they pick up an issue or better yet, a collection of that Texas blood? Like what are, what are some of those themes that you work with? What are, what's it about? It's about a West Texas County. It's a fictional County in West Texas. Um, and essentially it's about all the bad stuff that happens there. And happens to the people there and also just around the people there um it's it's about the people's lives there um we tend to follow around uh sheriff joe bob coates um who in the very first issue is having his 70th birthday um and he's been doing this for a while and you know he starts to you know sort of ruminate about why all these bad things tend to be happening in his county and, you know, is there a reason for it? You know, wh why does all this bad stuff happen? And to all these good people, you know, he knows them. He, he's known them all his life. And that's sort of the gist of the series. Um, but, you know, I'd say that it's a very human uh, series and that we, we explore human, just, just what makes humans human. We, we, we explore emotions and and uh, a lot of tragedy, I feel like it would be safe to say. Um, but also, you know, we have humor and, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's a very human uh, series. That's my argument for what the series is. 
Yeah, and I was telling you this before we got on air. This is, listeners, if you like my movie picks every week, this is going to speak directly to you like it speaks to me. It's a story of small-town crime, essentially. Uh, And there are two different arcs so far. So we've got Volume 1, which you can find collected, it's amazing. It collects, I think, six books. Correct me if I'm wrong, but six books into one volume yep. in the first one, yeah. And then the second one, you can pre-order right now, which is due uh, January 18th. So jump in, read volume one. You're going to rip through it in like probably a day. You're not going to want to put it down. And then go and pre-order volume two. It is really, really good. And like I said, there are definitely, I mean, well, you can <laughs> you can tell me this, but I feel like it's heavily influenced by some films uh, made in Texas, which I think we're going to probably talk about some here today. It is for sure. Um, It is absolutely influenced by films that were made in Texas, set in Texas. Um, Often what is often the case is that they're also written by Texans or directed by Texans or people that are obsessed with Texas. Um, (laughs) Just real quick. I wanted to say that. uh, So the, the 18th is the the street date for Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, big box stores, if you will. Uh, if you want to get it at your local comic shop, uh, it is in stores on the 12th. So it's actually in stores uh, just about a week earlier. Uh, so you know, if you wanted to order it from your local comic shop, many of us have a local comic shop. I know in West Texas there are no local comic shops. <laughs> the closest comic shop is in Midland. Uh, from where, uh, you know, our comic sort of kind of takes place, which is Marfa and Fort Davis. Um, but yeah, if you want to order from your local comic shop, it's available about a week earlier. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to add there. Cool. Uh, obviously it's better to order it from your local shop and support those folks first. So if you can pick it up from there, and, uh, if you just have no way to get it from a local place, uh, again, hit the show notes and I will have links there for you. Everything is bigger in Texas, including our picks. Chris Condon, are you ready to get to the list? I am. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? Huh? You know what's going to happen? No, no, no. Words? You just made the list! Top five. Top five. The top five. Top five. Texas films. I'm wondering how much crossover we'll have here. Like... I, I guess if I had to make a guess, I would say we're going to cross over on at least one that feels like a huge influence just on your writing in general. I, I'm sure we're going to cross over a few times. All right. Well, I am going to start things off here with, I guess, what would be my most off-putting choice. And uh, that just means for certain listeners, this is going to be a hard film to watch, but I don't know why I, I just have a deep love for 2012's Killer Joe. I need $6,000 or some guys are gonna kill me. Better get out of town, quick! You ever hear of Joe Cooper? He's a cop, a detective actually. He got a little business on the side. What you do? He kills people. Mom's got a $50,000 life insurance policy. Killer Joe's a professional. He'll do this right. This murder we're talking about. I ain't agreed to nothing. I heard y'all talking about killing Mama. I think it's a good idea. Well, there you go. My payment is $25,000 in cash. No 
exceptions. That's not our problem. What is your problem? We have a problem with the advance. No exceptions. Conversation is finished. Of course, we never discussed the possibility of a retainer. What do you mean? Hey, man, you talking about my sister? Is that who she is? Directed by oh. William Friedkin. You seen this one before? I have. And you know what? I mean, that's that's a good choice. That's that's a good choice. That's what we call a deep cut. I guess it could be considered that. Uh, this one stars Emil Hirsch in just a great role for him. Juno Temple, Thomas Hayden Church, and Matthew McConaughey. Killer Joe revolves around a murder-for-hire plot by a family so that they can collect some insurance money from the dearly departed. But the the coolest thing about this movie is Matthew McConaughey, who plays Killer Joe. Um, I think his name's Joe Cooper, a cop who moonlights as a killer for hire, who's hired to pull off this job for Chris, who's played by Emil Hirsch, who, by the way, Emil Hirsch in this role just plays the perfect amount of idiot. Like, he is just the stupidest character, and it's so funny to see him rattle back and forth. And so McConaughey is hired by Chris. Unfortunately, they can't afford his $25,000 deposit, so instead he asks to take Chris's sister as collateral, which further complicates things, and it just goes wild from there. This is a big difference from stuff that you're probably used to from Friedkin, uh, which stick in mostly a grim reality. This movie feels like a live-action cartoon. I think I read in one review that it felt like uh, Tex Avery characters come to life, and I can definitely see that. It is these cartoons put into over-the-top violent situations, and it's actually really funny, but it's also like pitch-black comedy. So if you're not into dark comedies, this one's probably going to be one that you're going to want to steer clear of. There's a scene in the climax that sees all of our remaining characters sitting around this table, and it features a chicken wing in a way that you won't find in any other movie. And uh, just to give you a, a taste of how it's used, this movie was originally cast with a NC-17 rating that was cut down for theaters. You can, of course, find the unrated version or the NC-17 version on Blu-ray, but... Um, yeah, Matthew McConaughey is just a star in this as this laid-back, really kind of weird killer who's trying to woo Juno Temple's character as he has essentially, I wouldn't even say kidnapped, but he's taken control of her. I think it's um, it's just such a wild ride. Wild is the word for it, I think, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's my number five, Killer Joe from 2012. Chris, what's number five on your list? I had to pick the Sugarland Express, which is the first uh, feature film, if you don't count, duel from Steven Spielberg. Welfare's come and taken baby Langston forever. They're going to keep him in that foster home. I want my baby back. Now, are you going to help me or not? Well, where's he now? Over oh, in Sugarland. This true but incredible event happened in Texas in 1969. So far, it's Grand Theft Auto, speeding, driving to a danger, resisting arrest, threatening an officer, the illegal possession of firearms and assault. But if I get in that car, you got kidnapping. That's fake. This film was made in 1974. 
Um, it's a beautiful film. It's shot by Vilmos Sigmund, uh, who you might know from his work on another Steven Spielberg movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It stars Goldie Hawn and William Atherton, uh, Ben Johnson in a fantastic role. Um, it's essentially a it's a chase movie, uh, but a very slow paced chase movie. Um, and the thing that I absolutely love about it is that it's about two essentially inept crooks who don't really want to be crooks. It's just that their child has been taken away from them. I mean, they want their child back. And that's essentially the plot of the movie. And uh, so what they do is they they uh, hold a, a highway uh, patrolman hostage. <laughs> and they, they take his car and they're they're on this chase with a, with a bunch of the other uh, state troopers after them. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, very much in that in the sort of 70s style uh where where it's 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 very it, it it's very real it feels very real it feels very human um but you also get all those touches in there from Spielberg all those things that you know make him what he is and eventually what you know you'd see in th- films as different as ET or uh you know close encounters even um you you see this this side to to him in in Sugarland Express that is telling what you might expect from any other of the of the new Hollywood film directors, but with this sort of I don't know familial uh, uh, this sort of just familial tone to it. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but uh, there's one child. There's one. Uh, shot in, in particular in which there's a, there's a shot of a child um and it, it's just it so perfectly captures what is spielbergian about this movie um i think it's a fantastic movie i think it's uh, a very human movie is it the best movie steven spielberg's ever made no um is it the best film ever made no but is it a movie that i love yes absolutely and it's one of it's one of my favorite texas movies Plus, it's a road movie, so you know you get to see a lot of Texas in it. So, um, so that's my number five, the Sugarland Express. This is probably going to surprise a lot of people, but I've never seen the Sugarland Express. I recommend it. I'm a huge fan of road movies too, and never really has this come up on a on a good road movie list. And wow, I guess I need to check it out. I mean, I like Spielberg, like everybody should. So yeah, I gotta, I gotta give this a spin if you've ever seen i mean you've definitely seen jaws but if you've seen the the there's a an elderly couple in jaws they they also appear in the sugarland <laughs> express they're they're kind of a, a major plot point in the sugarland express a, a sort of comedic uh plot point um yeah i don't know it it just it hits all the all the points for school but i almost kind of wish that he would have kept making movies like the sugarland express like those smaller stories yeah, smaller but also it it's just feels very I don't, I don't know it feels like something that you like i said that like you would expect to see from a new new hollywood director it's it's just unfortunate that um fortunate and unfortunate obviously that i mean jaws is one of my all-time favorite movies yeah but it's also unfortunate that that sort of just uh, cemented in time the the uh, the blockbuster and and gave us the, the blockbuster and basically handed the reins back over to the studios. You know, it became the studio system again, essentially. Sure. After Jaws, um, 
So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love Spielberg's movies in general, but this one has a special place in my heart because it's it's very much a different film from him, but it's it still works as a Spielberg movie, but also it's just a, a new Hollywood picture. All right, I'll have to check that out. Sugarland Express, good one. Um, my number four is... Geez, I just realized going through mine that most of mine are focused on crime, but this one is not like a hardcore crime movie. This is 1996's Bottle Rocket. Bob Mapplethorpe, potential getaway driver. Go. I really want to be a part of this team. And I'm the only one with a car. That's good. That's good. Because that hits me right here. I'm Anthony. You speak English? It's amazing how close you can get to a girl when you're not allowed to talk to her. And my name's Digden, man. You in the army, yes? No, no, I just had short hair. We are a team. Digden, I, relax. I can't focus Look, unless the gun, gun is on the table. We just paid for it. Shut up, man. We don't settle our problems with pugs, man. We settle them with bare knuckles and that's talking. All they ever wanted was to be wanted. This Ooh. one's directed by Wes Anderson. And I know if you are a Wes Anderson hater, you're you're probably thinking, well, uh, I can tune out right now. But this is, I think if you're annoyed by his current style, this is the least like Wes Anderson-y movie. This is him trying to kind of, this is his first movie. So he's trying to establish his style and figure things out. It stars Owen and Luke Wilson, of course. Uh, also James Kane and Robert Musgrave. And uh, it's about this dude, Anthony, played by Luke Wilson, and he is released from a mental hospital after he has a nervous breakdown. He's kind of directionless, and he joins his friend Dignan, who is played by Owen Wilson, and he is seemingly far less sane than Anthony, and he has hatched a harebrained scheme for a crime spree, I guess? We don't even really know what he's trying to accomplish at first that involves his former boss, the legendary, supposedly legendary Mr. Henry, it is hard to articulate exactly why I love Bottle Rocket. It's um, simple, but it's very fun, and it's got these quirky characters that are just so endearing, and their friendship is really charismatic. Admittedly, it's a messy, pretty loose movie, but gosh, I have such a good time with it. It's one of those uh, acquired tastes. Like, it's going to be one of those films that's not for everybody. It's got a very specific dry sense of humor to it that will turn some people off. I watched this with my wife and she was not amused <laughs> and I was just cracking up laughing because I, I adore the interactions so much. One of the things that stands out here is not just the things that people say, but the way that people say them. Let's suppose either one of you know why Bob's car's parked out in front. Yeah, he's here. He's, uh, he's in... He's, he's, uh, he's here at the house. I'm gonna see Bob's keeping the pool clean. That's future man. Uh, yeah, I know. What the fuck is this? Bob knows, Clay. Bob, you were told to thoroughly clean the pool this morning. It's a leaf. Jack, there was one leaf. Man, one leaf. And it's just those little moments that I think are really great for Bottle Rocket. You can see those pieces of that typical Wes Anderson style kind of poking through here, but it's not full on postcard like you see in his movies now. And I think it's cool to see the evolution of it. I just love it. Yeah, I can't recommend Bottle Rocket enough, especially if you like things like Royal Tenenbaums or Rushmore. Check this out. Oh, that's a good choice. I love Bottle Rocket. I haven't seen it in a long time, though. 
but I, I know that uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, he saw that movie and made the bold claim, as he is allowed to do since he's Martin Scorsese, uh, that Wes Anderson was the new Martin Scorsese, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I know he had it like in his top 10 films of the 90s as well. Uh, I mean, it's it's a great movie. It's a great looking movie. And to have been a first film, it's pretty spectacular. I have Paris, Texas. It's a 1984 movie uh, directed by Vim Vendors. I can never hear up what happened. I can't even hardly remember what happened. It's like a gap. Uh, have you seen Jane or talked to her? <laughs> we thought you were dead, boy. How long have I been gone, do you know? Four years. Is four years a long time? It is for a little boy. There will be no safety zone. I can guarantee you the safety zone will be eliminated. It's uh, shot by Robbie Mueller, uh, starring Harry Dean Stanton, uh, Dean Stockwell, and Natasha Sk- uh, Kinski. It's a movie that is about uh, a man who's searching for... His soul, I want to say, is what it's about. It's yeah. it's a hard movie to encapsulate in words. I feel like you just have to experience it. Um, but it opens on Harry Dean Stanton, who's disappeared. Nobody has seen him for a while. I don't know exactly how long it is, but he's wandering the deserts of Texas, um, and he he winds up at a at a clinic somewhere. Um, and he's not talking. He can't talk. He's lost the ability to speak. Um, and essentially it revolves around him and his son, uh, reconnecting and trying to reconnect with, uh, with his wife, um, and sort of dealing with the the trauma of the past and, you know, moving forward into the future. Um, it's, like I said, it's shot by Robbie Mueller. It's a beautiful movie. Lots of beautiful uh, choices in it in terms of the colors that they use. The the the, the lighting in it is you know either green or red, um, but the the landscape it, the shots are fantastic. Um, they really they 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 pop. Um, if Criterion, I don't believe the Criterion has released a 4K uh, UHD yet um, Blu-ray, but they should because this is a movie that would be beautiful uh in that 4k format um but it's just it's it's a beautiful movie uh to look at it's a beautiful movie to experience as as a viewer um what you see harry dean stanton do as an actor in the film is just nothing short of moving which i think is you know the biggest compliment that you can pay an actor is that his, his performance is moving um and obviously you know it's got the great dean stockwell in it uh, who just passed away this year but and also a really good turn by hunter carson who is the son of lm kit carson who uh wrote the movie or adapted the movie from uh, I, th- I think it was with uh, sam shepherd if i'm not mistaken but his his mom is karen black and he himself, Hunter Carson, is a fantastic little actor. Um, he also, if I'm not mistaken, he also appears in a, another, technically, maybe not a Texan, Texas movie, but uh, 
uh, Invaders from Mars, <laughs> which is a Toby <laughs> Hooper movie, and Toby Hooper is nothing if not a Texas fried filmmaker. Yeah, Harris, uh, Texas, it's one of my favorite films. It was a big influence on on how I wanted our comic to feel, just in terms of in the atmosphere. Um, you know, so in terms of like the wide shots and everything that we have in it, um, you know, that is very much inspired by Paris, Texas. It was one of the first things that I told uh, Jacob to look at when we were creating the comic. And then uh, we have a soundtrack in the back of every issue. And the first song on the first playlist is Paris, Texas. Nice. You know? So by Ry Cooter, that's another thing. The music is fantastic. Ry Cooter did the music for it. It really is just an all-time favorite movie. I'm honestly surprised that I'm putting it at four. It probably could be one, but you know, I I want to talk about these other films too. <laughs> so I'm putting Paris <laughs> Texas at four. When I was talking about films that probably influenced your book, this is one of those films that I was thinking mm-hmm. of, um, just because of those yeah. landscape shots, which are just awesome. Uh, like the quiet stretches of desert, you know? Uh, I, I mean, I think this may have been the movie that kind of, I'd always been interested in the West. I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I think most pe- most kids are, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, cowboys, six shooters, what's not to like. Um, <laughs> but I think in terms of uh, as a young film buff, cinephile, whatever you want to call it, uh, seeing this movie really spoke to me and made me want to make movies that took place in this environment. And I know that the movie also takes place in, in Los Angeles. And that's, that's also a recurring theme by accident. Um, I have Los Angeles show up a lot in our comic as well. Um, but that's mainly because I lived there. And, you know, so my experience with Texas and LA was that I also had a good friend that's basically how I got introduced to the actual Texas was like, he's from West Texas. So I was, you know, traveling back and forth with him occasionally. Um, so yeah. Uh, but Paris, Texas is, was a gigantic influence on me. He's just a, you know, a writer and, uh, you know, just wanting to make movies and make comics and write in general. Um, I wrote a lot of stuff that sort of had that feel to it. Um. Yeah, big influence on me. Big influence also on Jacob. Strong, strong number four. And as often happens on these lists, we're gonna go from your prestige picture to the gutter because uh, <laughs> we're gonna be talking about 1989's Action USA at number three for me. You're not so lucky now, asshole. See, but Billy Ray was the only one that really knew where the diamonds were. Yeah! Hey, Billy Ray, right the same degree. Now you have them, and I want them. I have not seen this. Okay, Action USA is uh, one of the craziest movies that I've ever seen in terms of the stuff that uh, that you're going to see on screen. So this is directed by John Stewart, not the John Stewart that you're familiar with from Comedy Central, but the John Stewart uh, who was a stuntman in the 80s, and this is what he came up with as his directorial debut. It's a pretty typical 
action movie story. You have this woman named Carmen and her boyfriend hit a bunch of diamonds and we don't know where he got them, why he hid them or why she's even with him, but that's the setup. And after he's killed by two hitmen, some FBI agents named Osborne and McKinnon snap her up to protect her. Uh, it's kind of like a lethal weapon type of dynamic that they have. And once they get a hold of her, three more hitmen are hot on their trail. I mean, look, you come out with a movie called Action USA, you better have some action. And this film does not let us down. Like I said, this dude was a stuntman and he made sure to fill this film with I mean, you, you have people hanging out of helicopters, you have cars jumping over buses for no reason. You have explosions, you have bar fights, you have people flying off of buildings, and all the action is done pretty well, especially for what I assume was a pretty shoestring budget back in the late 80s. Uh, the entertainment value in this movie is off the charts. It's also one of those so bad that it's good gems. I'll give you an example of what I mean here. At one point, there's a, a, a car chase, and this station wagon is run off the road by our main characters. And in some movies, you would just like not show what happens to this station wagon. But in this movie, the station wagon drives through the corner of a house. And the homeowner, who's sitting outside drinking a beer because it's Texas, says he just like looks at the guy in the car and says, hey, you just drove through my bedroom. And then the driver of the station wagon rolls down the window and says, sorry about your house, buddy. And he drives away as the house explodes into a thousand pieces. <laughs> and that's that's what kind of movie this is. I mean, look, the, the script is dumber than a bag of hammers. The editing is bad. The continuity gaffes are everywhere. Like you see visible harnesses, you see helmets in the stunt cars. And the one-liners definitely fall flat, but it is entertaining as hell. I just cannot recommend it highly enough for action movie fans. The explosions in this movie are mind-blowing. Just how they got these explosions on film. At number three, Action USA from 1989. I'm going to have to search this one out. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it. It sounds like a movie that a, a friend of mine and I would like. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the movie that we're going to have to watch. Nice. Shoot, what are we at? Number three for you? Number three. Um, I'm going to have to go with HUD, um, which is a 1963 picture. Um, it's directed by Martin Ritt. You're a dangerous woman to have around. I'm a good poker player. You're a good housekeeper. You're a good cook. You're a good laundress. What else are you good at? I've taken care of myself. Shouldn't have to, a woman looks like you do. Oh, that's what my ex-husband used to tell me. Before he took my wallet, my gasoline credit card, and left me stranded in a downtown motel in Albuquerque, New Mexico. What'd you do to make him take to the hill? You wear your curlers to bed or something? It's a gambler. He's probably up at Vegas Arena right now, dealing at night, losing it all back in the daytime. Man like that sounds no better than a heel. Aren't you all? Honey, don't go shooting all the dogs because one of them's got fleas. I was married to Ed for six years. The only thing he was ever good for was to scratch my back where I couldn't reach it. You still got that itch? It stars Paul Newman. That's that's essentially the... the <laughs> that's the movie is Paul Newman. He plays HUD. 
Um, HUD is, uh, for lack of a better word, an asshole. Um, he, he's a drinker. He's, uh, like I said, he's just a big old jerk. Um, he's a womanizer. Um, and it's, it's essentially about his life on the ranch with his father who comes from the old ways and he's sort of the, the, the new generation, um, but there's also this nephew, uh, Lonnie, and, uh, you know, it's basically the struggle of this family on this ranch, the, the new and the old. Um, it's based on a book called Horseman Passed By by Larry McMurtry, who also wrote The Last Picture Show um, and also Lonesome Dove. Uh, it, it's it's essentially, just, you know, it's, it's a Western drama, right? Um, directed by Martin Ridd, as I said, uh, cinematography. Um, by James Wong Howe, um, fantastic black and white cinematography. Um, it feels a, a, like it's in a series with the last picture show. They, they feel very much, you know, like kin. Um, this movie was a big influence on my comic. Um, and to be specific, it was a big influence on issues two through six, which was a, um, a story arc that we call the brother's conscience. And so essentially um, what happened was that I, I watched HUD when I was, you know, growing up watching movies, absorbing as many movies as I could. And an idea clicked in my mind of what if, you know, HUD had, you know, left at the end of the movie and, you know, had come back because of for some reason or other. Um, oh. And, you know, I sort, sort of like the idea of this character, but, you know, not necessarily this specific story but just a, a guy who it makes enemies with everyone uh you know having left his his hometown and you know having come back now and having to deal with his past and that was essentially the the influence um it came from hud which was you know again a 1963 picture um which i had seen and and absolutely adored and it, it it's very much it, it perfectly captures what it's supposed to capture which is that sort of passing of, of the torch from the the old generation to the new it's sort of in a way that the last picture show does as well um but yeah i i don't know i absolutely love this movie i think it's fantastic um i i hope more people see it i don't know how many people <laughs> actually see this movie nowadays, <laughs> but uh it's big, big influence on me um and yeah uh, paul newman is absolutely fantastic in it melvin douglas is in it as well um he plays hud's father homer he's fantastic in it um i think he may have been he may have won an oscar for the movie too if i'm not mistaken um but it, it really is just it's a fantastic movie on all levels um very much like paris texas too in that way it looks beautiful. The performances are great. The writing is great. The direction is fantastic. So you, you can't really go wrong. Um, and I, I believe it's got music by Elmer Bernstein, Bernstein as well. So um, again, can't really go wrong with that. I have not seen HUD. I have heard of HUD because I know it was nominated for like seven Academy Awards the year it came out. So mm-hmm. I guess I need to push HUD on my list as well. And yeah, I mean, if you're saying it's as big of an influence, I'm going to have to watch for those pieces of Randy as I watch HUD to see 
to see if I can pick that all out of of uh, how it came together in that Texas Blood. So if I'm being honest, so the the original idea was to have the HUD character, like you know, the, the idea of the HUD character leaving and then coming back, and then I sort of thought that he he's not really, you know, you don't you don't really want to have him have redemption. <laughs> so I I basically was like, okay, so then what what if it's Lonnie? Mm. It's still it kept that influence. You know, what if the sort of he he was instead of a nephew, he's the brother, and you know this dynamic of these two people um, who are family, um, you know, and just ha- how that fits in, you know, into creating a a, a person as they're growing up. Because uh, Lonnie is is a teen in the movie, and you know he he basically has this bad guy, uh, you know, in his life who's uh, essentially a not a father figure because he, he does have homer you know so he has a, he has a moral good person in his life who's this aging person and he's also got this other guy in his life so he's got these two diametrically opposed uh forces in his life um yeah i'm i went off on a tangent there and i, I lost my train of thought but it's a really good movie <laughs> i'll have to check it out and and uh see if i can pick out those influences that's awesome uh, number two for me, I would be very surprised if you haven't seen this. And if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It is from 2014. It's the newest film on my list, directed by Jim Mickle. This one's called Cold in July. Richard, mm. I think I heard something. Felon, you're an upstanding citizen. Sometimes a good guy wins. I hear you got you one last night. It's not something I'm proud of. Police want a statement from me. It's all over the school. So what happens now? We buried a son of a bitch. He got any family? A daddy in Huntsville prison. He just got paroled. Mr. Russell, I'm sorry. You're uh, Dane, right? Your boy. He looks a whole lot like you, doesn't he? haven't seen it but i believe that it's based off of a um isn't it based off of a a joe lansdale it is yeah it is and that world was further expanded with um oh what was the tv show called happen happen leonard yeah yeah, yes you know i really wanted to see this movie and i just haven't gotten around to it and now i'm gonna get around to it because this is your number two Oh, yeah, it's really, really good. I'm going to skirt around some of the plot details because I think it's best to go in fresh. Uh, I'm going to say that it does star Michael C. Hall, Sam Shepard, who we already kind of talked about, Don Johnson and Vanessa Shaw. Uh, I'll just give the setup. So Richard Dane, who is played by Michael C. Hall, and he's so good in this role as this kind of timid family man. He and his wife wake up in the middle of the night. They hear some glass break and uh, he gets up. She's like, you got to go check out what it is. He nervously tosses bullets into his revolver, walks out and sees an intruder and kills him. Mm-hmm. So that's the opening of this movie. And the the cops come. Obviously, he it's a it's a self-defense thing. And he's kind of hailed as this town hero because he killed this low life drug addict. And he's 
obviously, I mean, he's a human being. He's distraught about it, and he goes to the funeral. And there's really nobody at this guy's funeral. Uh, but while he's at the funeral, he's confronted by this guy named Russell, who is played by Sam Shepard. And Russell is the victim's father. And, uh, you know, he acknowledges that his son wasn't a good person, but uh, he's he's not happy about it. And he threatens some violence against Richard's family. And you think that it's going to start, I mean, it starts off, you'd think that it's going to be this straightforward revenge drama. But about halfway through, it mutates into something else entirely. And I think that's why I love Cold in July so much, because I've seen so many revenge movies, and hardly ever do they surprise me now. This one almost goes into a completely different genre in a, like, you're never going to guess where it's going. And I think that's why I love it so much. It feels like a pulpy paperback novel, but it doesn't feel as grimy or as gritty as films like Killer Joe on, on my list. It feels a bit more glossy and artificial, which I think works in its favor. It's also got a great score. It's set in the 80s, but it reminds me of something that you'd hear uh, from an old Carpenter movie, like an Assault on Precinct 13, which is just killer, killer score. Uh, it's also really funny. It's darkly funny. I can't I can't even begin to talk about like a standout performance because they're all good. Sam Shepard's always good. Don Johnson in particular is great. He's like this um he's this eccentric private investigator that's every time you see him on screen, it's like he's dripping uh, fried chicken grease. He is so good in this role. Um Cold in July 2014, I think it's an underseen movie and like I said, go in cold. Don't watch the trailer even because the trailer gives away some things that I did not see coming. And uh, I think it's best to go in cold to cold in July from 2014 at number two for me. You sold me. I, I mean, I, I, I was I was already sold when I, <laughs> but I just haven't <laughs> seen it. But you just sold me even further down. So, um, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Really does. Really, really good. Number two for you. Uh, I'm going to have to go with a 1984 motion picture directed by the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan Coen. It's another first film. Uh, it's Blood Simple. Well, what I know about is Texas. And down here, you're on your own. Hey, what's it? Your husband. I got a job for you. It's not strictly legal. You want me to kill him? Ray, let's get out of here. <laughs> this movie is another one of those debuts that just completely knocks it out of the park it not only does it knock it out of the park it completely just walks into the room and says we are the coen brothers they're already <laughs> fully formed they're 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 not you know figuring out who they are they are there you know they are pulp paperbacks they are classic film they are in a way they, i mean they're not texan but they they ooze texas they, they ooze this sort of western grit uh, and they eventually remake True Grit, so it makes sense. Um, <laughs> but 
it's just it's a fantastic neo-noir film uh it stars francis mcdormand and emmett walsh john getz uh it, it's essentially it, it's a, more or less it's if, if you break it down story-wise it's essentially your standard sort of noir story uh wife is cheating on husband who has money uh wants to get at money plots to kill husband it goes awry um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and mm walsh really kind of steals the show um Francis McDormand is fantastic, but M. Emmett Walsh is really the, the highlight of the movie and uh, for my money. Yeah. Uh, he plays a private detective who is hired by uh, Dan Hedaya, uh, who is Francis McDormand's husband. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think I did. Anyway, yeah. um, he's hired by the, the husband uh, because he thinks that she is cheating. And of course she is uh, with John Getz. And this uh, private detective is what you might call an unscrupulous uh, private detective. Um, He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. Uh, And not just for his client, also just for himself, which is a really uh, unique Texas spin on things. It's it's really a fantastic movie. It looks great. Uh, There is a Again, Criterion Blu-ray out there. Uh, the music is great. Uh, and also, yeah, again, just a fantastic debut for the Coen brothers. Um, yeah, one of my favorite movies. Big influence on me. Uh, just in, um, in my writing and what I seek out in terms of, you know, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure this is the, the movie that made me seek out, you know, Jim Thompson novels, which were a big influence on the comic this movie itself is a big influence on the comic whether it influenced anything in particular i can't really say but it it was um in an overall sense it was a big influence on the comic and just big influence on me as a creator somebody who's making stuff yeah this is a great choice this is number like if i had a top 10 list this would probably make number six uh, like I mentioned when I said Wes, I, I brought up Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket, which was his first, which you could see elements of Wes Anderson in. You're right. This is the Coen brothers. Their style is already established. They have their signature style here. It's baked. They even have um, the the um, amazing like dragging the body across the road while the headlights approach shot that they yeah. essentially reused for Fargo and the the tone is on point. There's a windowsill scene that is just masterfully done. M. Emmett Walsh, who you mentioned, gives an awesome performance. I think this is like one of his best performances that he ever had. Just fantastic as this up there with the jerk. <laughs> yeah. Just so good as this greasy private eye. Uh, I do have the Criterion. This is one that I love so much that I have two versions of it. I have the Criterion version on my shelf, and then I also have the imported Steelbook version on my Steelbook wall because I had to have it. Uh, it's just a fantastic movie. I love it. Coen Brothers. Yeah, I. You mentioned uh, you know some of the the the, the camera work and, and some of the shots during the movie. I I do think that um, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead was a big influence on this movie whether it's intentional or not. Um, I don't know uh, how well known this is. I, I, to me, it was like, 
you know, I learned this very early, but Joel Cohen was one of the editors on uh, on Evil Dead. And I'm sure that he saw some of the techniques that Sam Raimi was using, sort of his, what he would call like vaso torture cam and like all these kind of crazy, <laughs> like, uh, you know, zooms and stuff. And that definitely influenced the Cone brothers. I mean, they still use stuff. I mean, you'll see it in like the Big Lebowski and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I definitely think that some of the, the uh, more, I, I don't know what the word is exactly, but some, some of the, the more cinematic uh, camera moves, I feel like were very much influenced by Sam Raimi as well, um, which, you know, steal from the best, right? Yeah. Well, we're at our number ones here and we have not yet had any crossover I didn't put Blood Simple on there. You mentioned that the Coen brothers, they're not from Texas, but Jesus, it feels like they're from Texas. And I had to put a different Coen brothers film at my number one. Of course, this is 2007's No Country for Old Men. Willen, what's in the satchel? It's a bowl of money. He's just a guy who happened to find that money. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. I don't come back, you tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts of dead are hunting him? When, when I think of films from Texas, this is not only my favorite, it's probably my top 10 movies of all time, but it feels mm-hmm. like a huge influence on that Texas blood based on our main character in that book. This is based on a book by Cormac McCarthy, and it's really sharply adapted. They didn't go too much off of what Cormac McCarthy had written. It's about this dude named Llewellyn Moss, and he's out and about one day, and he stumbles upon some dead bodies, two million bucks and a bunch of heroin in the Texas desert. And then at night he goes to... He he, he doesn't leave with it then, but he comes back in the middle of the night to, to get it. And this, of course unravels this this plot where this dude Anton Chigurh comes looking for it and you have this local sheriff Ed Tom Bell and he's hot on everybody's trails it's the roles of predator and prey blurring in this pursuit of money and justice and I think what makes this movie so fantastic is the villain Anton Chigurh it's uh, Javier Bardem, I was blanking on the name, but Javier Bardem is just amazing. He's like this force of nature, like a fucking hurricane coming through, decimating anything in his path on his way to getting back the money that was lost. The way he looks, the way he talks, even his weapon, which is this cattle prod killing. It's it's like, um, I don't know, what, what do you call, what do you even call that? It's, uh, it's used to, to, you put it to a cow's head and you. I, yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's just an air air gun or something like that. I don't know exactly what it's called. Yeah, it's like a, a little pneumatic air press. Yeah, it shoots a little like metal piece out and it embeds in the skull and then shoots back out again. It's so unique. Um, and it's just so perfect. There's, 
a scene where he goes into a gas station and he almost puts this person's life in the hands of a coin toss. And it's just so well acted, so well done. And Josh Brolin is fantastic as Llewellyn Moss. And I think that the reason I find him so great is although he's your typical Texan good old boy, he's not dumb. And he takes the time to think about his actions, but he also goes through with those actions knowing full well that it's probably not going to end up well for him. And it also seems through the movie that he never really has control over what's going on as this audience surrogate between the new world and the old world. It's shot beautifully. It has a fantastic script that really centers on that changing of the guard. And it feels like this modern Western in which the values of the old are disappearing. And Tommy Lee Jones' character, Ed Tom Bell, as he gets older, you know, we say as you get older, you get wiser. And he is getting wiser. But at the same time, times are changing. And his, his wisdom doesn't really matter as much. There are some really interesting stylistic choices here that mirror the book that really make you realize how bold the Coens were to adapt this piece. Like, there's a main character that is killed off screen in the ending, which... I know wasn't satisfying for everybody, certainly took balls to, to film. I love No Country for Old Men. There's a great chase sequence in it. There's a, uh, a hotel room scene that is so kinetic. When I think about the Coen brothers best, how can you even pick one? But it's an internal struggle for me between Fargo and No Country for Old Men. And just the skill of filmmaking, I think I have to give it to No Country I have to give it that edge. It won four Academy Awards, and if I'm not mistaken, it won Best Picture. Uh, I know Javier Bardem, he won for Best Supporting Role. They won for Director. They won for Screenplay. Just so goddamn good, and um, shot by Roger Deakins, so you know that it looks fantastic as well. This had to have been an influence on that Texas blood. I, it, it definitely is, um, and we, we had the luxury of setting our uh comic in west texas which is actually you know which is where our comic is set and this is set uh uh they actually shot a lot of the movie in marfa texas which is actually where my good friend that i mentioned before who lives in california uh, where he's from nice Uh, he's from fort davis which is right next to marfa so what i got to experience in texas was what this movie essentially um shows and so, of course, I wanted to, you know, continue this type of story. Um, yeah, definitely a big influence on me. I Also, just by osmosis, I mean, I don't, I don't think that I, I just sat down to watch it again to influence me. It just sort of is there now. Sure. Um, but you're absolutely right. It is such a fantastic movie. One of my favorite things about the movie. And, I mean, I remember seeing the movie in the theater. I, I mean... I, I was 16 at the time, I guess, you know, 2007. Um, but yeah, I I remember seeing the movie and everybody I went and saw it with hated it. Everyone <laughs> in the theater hated it. I remember thinking I was the crazy person because I was like, what the hell? I This was fantastic. What did they not like? Yeah. I loved it. It didn't have mu- movie music in it. Uh, I believe the only music that shows up is a mariachi band that plays at some point. Yeah, there's no score. No score whatsoever. It's just the sounds of the desert. It's brilliant. Um, and I think that it really has 
no equal in terms of its suspense, except maybe the wages of fear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it really is just a it's a it's a tightrope walk of a movie. It it really is a fantastic piece of cinema, and I you know the Coen brothers could have just hung up their proverbial hats after this movie, but they didn't. <laughs> yeah, they continued to make great movies. I mean, unfortunately, it seems that Ethan might not be making any more movies, but Joel is continuing to make movies. Um, I haven't seen his Macbeth yet, but it looks fantastic. It looks sort of akin to the Wells Macbeth, which is, in my mind, very very good. Yeah, I'm excited to see it too. If I had to guess that we were going to have any crossover, that was going to be it. So I got to ask, Chris, what's your number one? What's got the top of your crown here? Well, so here's the thing. I had no country on my list. And I'm like, I don't know where I want to put it. Do I want to put it at number one? And you know what? I put a different movie at number one. I'll tell you why. All right. So my number one movie is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Rated R. So why the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Because I don't think a movie captures the just the 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 raw i i, I can't really ca- put it into words exactly but it really is just it it for my money the texas chainsaw massacre is the scariest movie of all time i know that that phrase is bandied about often with various movies the exorcist is the scariest movie i've ever seen whatever whatever i think the texas chainsaw massacre is the scariest movie i've ever seen and i'll tell you why specifically um there is a dinner sequence in which uh, Grandpa, who is this just insane, surreal-looking creature sitting at the end of this table, <laughs> you know, is is there, but he's alive, but he looks like he's not. He looks like he's just made out of Play-Doh or something, which he may have been. I don't know uh, how they did the makeup. I don't know. But it's this insane movie with this family of cannibals sitting around, and their victim is... Just watching them with just this insane look in her eyes because she's just being driven insane. And to me, that, you know, I was watching this scene and I'm watching this where they put this hammer into grandpa's hand and he's trying to hit it and he just keeps hitting the, keeps dropping and then he keeps hitting the, the, the bucket and all this. And I, I literally found myself just, and this has only happened with the best movies that I've seen. I literally am leaning forward and my jaw is just hanging and I'm just watching this. And this was probably the third or fourth time I've seen this movie. I'd seen it before, but I hadn't seen it in years and I'm watching it and I'm just like blown away by this movie because I'm just lost in it. Like what the hell am I watching? And to me, that is what is so scary about it. And I feel like it captures a lot of what Texas is because Texas is, you know, I love Texas. Texas is a great place. I love the people in Texas, but there's also a lot of that. What the hell in Texas? <laughs> and I think that, you know, we open our comic with this quote and it, this is actually in the Texas state travel guide. It says it's like an, it's like a whole nother country. I think that that very much captures what Texas is in a way. And, you know, sort of the, the feel of Texas 
um, and what you can expect in Texas. But I think that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre perfectly encapsulates that phrase because you feel like you're in another world when you're watching that movie. But then when you're driving through Texas and you're passing these places, you're passing these abandoned, you know, ranch houses or, you know, whatever, they're, they've fallen down. You start to wonder if there's anybody in there, you know? Yeah. It, it, it really captures the sort of primal fear um, in a brilliant way. I think that it's, you know, I think I think that there's no question that it's the best movie that Toby Hooper made. Um, I, I think that he's a maligned filmmaker. I, I think that he's better I, than I he's credit for. Um, you know, I, I, I think the movies even like, you know, I mentioned before Invaders from Mars. I think that that's, you know, I honestly didn't like that movie the first time I saw it, but I rewatched it and I actually had a deeper appreciation for the movie. And Life Force, too. Life Force is a fantastic movie. Um, I like his fun house a lot. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just this, again, he walks into the into the world of, of cinema and just says, I am Toby Hooper. This is my movie. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Who just shows up with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? <laughs> you know? It, it, not only did, did he just establish this insane horror character in Leatherface that would go on to just have a life of its own. I mean, they now just call movies Leatherface, you know, this is yeah. Lucy. They're literally just naming them after the character, you know, it, it just, and they could never, they could never capture that, that sort of lightning in a bottle energy of the movie again. I mean, I like Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, but it's a totally different movie. And I think that, you know, Toby Hooper knew that and he knew that he couldn't capture that same sort of energy that he had in this movie, because I really do feel like it just has this primal energy in it that is just so perfectly Texas. I really do think that the, this is the Texas movie. If, if you were to ask me what a Texas movie is, I'd probably say No Country as well. But the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me perfectly captures the world because there's you know there's of course there's there's friendly folks in texas you know i mean the, the characters that are in the texas chancel massacre they're traveling in their van the teens um you know we're to assume i believe that they are from texas in the film i i can't remember exactly but you know so i mean we know that texan texans aren't necessarily all cannibals <laughs> but we know that it could happen in texas and that is that is what is so brilliant about this movie is that this could happen in Texas. I mean, you you mentioned it's the scariest film you've ever seen, and I don't think that's a stretch for a lot of people. It's if you look up best horror movies ever, it's going to be on so many lists at the top. It's a fantastic, sweaty, low budget film that, like you said, has knockoffs and i mean a lot of people credit halloween and friday the 13th with kind of building that slasher genre but it started with the texas chainsaw massacre people using tools as killing machines the large hulking antagonist that's cloaked in the shadows it's been a uh, an inspiration to people like wes craven ridley scott even newer directors like Alexander Aha, like so many people that have been influenced by this. I would love to see a That Texas Blood horror story 
inspired <laughs> by some of those Texas horror movies. I mean, like you said, number two, not as good, but he kind of went in a more comedic route with that one. The the first one, I love it. Me. Oh, I, I like number two. There, there's a, there's a very, uh, there's a thing that's coming up, and you know, if we, if we get there, that'd be great. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if, if we get there, it would be like two or three arcs in. But there's something that's very much influenced by Texas Chainsaw too. Oh, nice. It, it's the uh, what is it, the Civil War Battleland or something? The the park. It's it's sort of an inspiration from that, but. Um, you know, Texas Chainsaw Two is it's it's a it's a comment on the yuppies, whereas Texas Chainsaw the original is sort of a comment on you know the the people in in rural America that were left behind. Authentic Texas, just insanity. I you know part and parcel with uh, you know Killer Joe. And uh, speaking of Killer Joe, I'm just going to run down our list real quick just to give everybody a refresh before we get to our honorable mentions. At number five, you had the Sugarland Express from 1974. Your number four was Paris, Texas. Number three, HUD from 1963. Number two, Blood Simple from the Coen Brothers. And at number one, the extremely deserving Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. And uh, my list was at number five, Killer Joe from 2012. Number four, Bottle Rocket from 1996. Number three, The Insane Action USA. Number two, Cold in July. And topping my list at number one, No Country for Old Men from 2007. Uh, Real quick, what were some of those honorable mentions that you wish you would have had a spot for on your list? Uh, Well, I like I said, I, I had No Country on there. Um, no country was just kind of floating around because I didn't know where to put it because I was like I could put it but it's so obvious you know of course I'm yeah. gonna put no country so I tried because I figured <laughs> you might pick it so I was like all right I'm gonna leave that off to the side because I feel like we're gonna talk about it anyway. Um, uh, the last picture show was one of the honorable mentions, um, and Touch of Evil was an honorable mention. Oh, I didn't even think of that one. Yeah, it's a it's a great Orson Welles film. Uh, it's got some questionable choices in it uh for one uh charlton heston playing a mexican man (laughs) Uh, but the opening sequence of that movie which i think goes on for like nine minutes or something like that it's a single take which obviously was all the rage a couple years ago (laughs) everybody's doing a single take movie um and orson beat them to it uh i think it's from 1958 if i'm not mistaken um, somewhere around there. It's the late 50s anyway. Uh, this opening sequence is essentially there's a bomb placed in the trunk of a car and the car crosses the Texas-Mexico border. And we're following this car as it drives into this border town and we're just waiting for it to explode. Brian De Palma did a great riff on it in Phantom of the Paradise as well. I honestly haven't seen that in a while. And that's why I didn't pick it because I was like, I, I don't think I could really talk about it too much. That's actually one of the reasons why I didn't put one of my honorable mentions on my list, just because I didn't remember much about it and I didn't get the chance to watch it again. And that's 2013's Joe starring uh, Nick Cage and Ty Mm. Sheridan, which I remember really loving, but I just didn't remember enough about it to put it on my list. Obviously, Blood Simple, I had mentioned Hell or High Water is one that I'm surprised didn't make either one of our lists. And that is a really, really good movie. It just didn't have a space. I have not seen Hell or High Water. I have not seen it. Yeah, you got to check that out. It's really good. 
two more real quick that I that just narrowly missed from dusk till dawn. I was a little disappointed. Oh. I couldn't get a Robert Rodriguez film on there. Cause and Tarantino, I mean, I, he's had a couple of films set in Texas with kill bills. Got some parts in Texas also. True. And then, uh, finally office space, which the only reason I didn't put office oh, space yeah. on my list is because it's all done in Texas, but it specifically doesn't want to be from anywhere. Uh, you can actually see in the movie, there are license plates that literally just say USA in it because they wanted nothing to do with a specific place, but everything about the exteriors screams Texas. And uh, that's why it didn't make my list. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, we could have picked a handful of Richard Linklater films as well. Days Confused, uh, Boyhood even. Yep. Chris Condon, awesome list. We've got 10 10 plus great films for people to watch from Texas now, spanning all kinds of genres, all time frames. Fantastic work. What else do you have to plug? Obviously, we want people to go and buy the books, That Texas Blood. Again, you're going to find links to it in the show notes. Volume 2, the collection, is going to be available on the 12th in uh, your local comic stores and on the 18th from bigger places like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. What else do you have coming out that you want to plug? Uh, anything else? Where can people find your social media stuff? What else do you want people to know? Yeah. Um, well, my social media accounts are both. So Twitter and Instagram are the only social media that I have. Uh, they're both at Christoph Condon, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H. No E-R. Um, that's because growing up, my license didn't fit my full name on it. They chopped <laughs> off the E-R. Nice. So it's just Christoph Condon is my Twitter and Instagram handles. Um, You can find me there. If you send me a message, I will respond, unless if you're very strange or threatening. (laughs) Yes, don't be strange or threatening, please. One of the things that I would uh, like to recommend if if people are, you know, enjoying hearing what I have to say here, if they're intrigued about the comic, uh, we do have an issue that just came out, came out on the 22nd of December, it's issue 13. It's our Christmas issue, which how could you not have a Christmas issue that's number 13? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a standalone issue. Uh, it's not collected with volume two. So if you want to read it, I suggest you pick it up at your local comic shop. Um, it's a, a single story, you know, one shot story about uh, a bad guy named Sheriff Buster Greer. Uh, the name of the story is what Buster Greer got for Christmas. It's 23 pages, lean, mean, gets to the point, influenced by Tales from the Crypt. Um, it's, a, it's a fun little Christmas ditty, uh, a Christmas ghost story, if you will. Uh, I had a good time writing it. I liked it even more when I got the artwork in to look at it, um, and people have seemed to like it. So if you're interested in what we're you know talking about here, definitely check out the trades. Um, those are available, but this issue is not going to be available in this trade. So if, if you want to read it, I recommend it. I, I, I like it. Um, yeah. And then we also, Jacob and I share a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash Condon Phillips. And, uh, we post on there regularly. Um, if you're a $6, uh, patron or a $10 patron, I write a typewritten letter to you every month. So that's that's a that's an incentive 
is that I write a letter to you. That's got to take a lot of time. <laughs> a lot of time. You're writing this stuff on a typewriter? It takes too much time. But the thing is that I know that, you know, if I was a comic book reader and I knew that an author was, you know, doing this, I would love it. Yeah. And so that's why I do it. So it may eat up two to three days of my time. <laughs> but I I know that other people enjoy it. You know, just the, the idea that you're getting a letter in the mail too. You know, that's not just a bill. Um, it's, you know, it's something that I would have enjoyed. And I think that our readers enjoy it. Um, we've got a whole bunch of more people on there now. Um, so and it's growing, which is really cool. But yeah, the $10 subscriber, they not only get this letter, they all, wow, my voice is cracked there. I hope you got that. <laughs> they not only get this letter, they also get a postcard, a very specific postcard. It's, you know, whatever it is, it's ex- exclusive for the Patreon, but it's also something that's never been released. It's never been part of the comic or whatever. So one of the things that we did, for example, was we had um, issue seven's cover before we released the cover for issue seven. We released it as a postcard. Um, so they're, you know, four by six postcards. Um, and I send those out with these letters. I'm in the the last one before this new one um, was a, the postcard that's on the back of all our issues, you know, so it's kind of fun, you know, cause it, it expands the world. It sort of makes the world feel real. Um, and honestly, it, you know, if people are interested in this sort of letter thing, one, one of the things that I do occasionally, you know, for example, when we were starting out with the 1981 arc, um, one of the things that I did, I wrote in character letters. Nice. Uh, from people within the county um so as you know one of the people was you know i don't know i don't even know like a clerk or whatever they're complaining you know somebody was complaining to the clerk <laughs> somebody else was doing this who's making up character names and sort of having fun with it but you know it's just sort of it brings people into the world a little bit more it brings me into the world a little bit more so it's it's just it's fun for me and it's fun for people who read them so uh again patreon.com slash condon phillips Awesome. Go support your writers. And I, sh- I didn't even mention his name, but uh, Jacob Phillips is the artist on that Texas blood. So go uh, support him as well. I, I believe I've said us or we a few times and Jacob Phillips is the we. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He he's a fantastic artist. He really is. Um, he is. If, if, if you're not reading our book, there's a chance that you may be reading um, the book that his father illustrates uh, Reckless which Ed Brubaker writes um, and Jake does the colors on it. Jake's colors are fantastic. His artwork is fantastic. I really, yeah, I'm really lucky to have him on board. So good. Uh, Chris Condon, that Texas blood. Again, you're going to find all this information in the show notes, links to the Patreon, links to the book, links to the, to his Twitter. So go check that out. Thanks so much, Chris. This was a great show. Thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate it. Great time. Did we miss one of your favorite Texas movie? Let me and Chris Condon know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might just make it to the next show. If you liked what you heard, review the show where you listen to podcasts and tell your friends to become list nerds along with us. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane and go watch some movies from the Lone Star State. Force 5. Where are you located, by the way?
Oh, I'm out in uh, San Francisco. Oh, nice. Yeah. How about you? I, I'm in New Jersey. Oh, okay, cool. I was actually born in Jersey. Oh, really? Yeah, I was born in Summit. Oh, nice. So was I. <laughs> <laughs> Small Overlook world. Hotel, or Overlook Hotel, Overlook uh, Hospital. Yeah, same here. That's so strange. Uh, small world. Yeah, no kidding. My mom actually worked there, so she may have actually uh, been in the <laughs> ER when you went through there. Oh my gosh! If she was around in 1981, that's possible. She would have been. She was Holy through the 70s moly. and 80s. Wow. Well, so there you go. 